coming off 4th of July. How many of you guys were able to join us last week at the uh, Plex of Rec? Any of you guys? It's a great time, much better celebrating in the ice rink than it was in the uh, Hades that uh, was the outside. Quick question of vulnerability. How many of you guys would consider yourself somewhat addicted to fire and enjoying the pyrotechnics of sorts? Uh, okay, many of you guys. Um, how many of you guys lit a whole bunch of fireworks in the last? Okay, there they are, yeah. Any, in, any fireworks injuries here? Any fireworks injuries? No? Okay. Pardon me? Family member? All right, that's good. It's not a party if no one gets hurt. Anyway, um, one thing I came to realize last Wednesday after the RecPlex, my family came uh, down here and watched the fireworks. and I realized that there is a, my new terminology is uh, there's such a thing as a fireworks face. Um, now, let me explain this if I can. If I were to get in a boat, okay, and I were to uh, go on the river here of the Missouri River that is right outside our doorsteps, and, uh, and I were to uh, take a picture uh, of all the people that were sitting down uh, at the moment, one of those majestical lights uh, lit up in the air, um, everyone's face is nearly identical, okay? It's a face up, chin down, like, like something like, you know, and if you were to take a picture, imagine it. It would just be this massive crowd, and everyone's going, you know, and like drool is coming down, some of them, you know, like kids are chomping on cotton candy, because we're enamored, it's like, it's like we're enamored with this spectacle that uh, fireworks are, and they've gotten more advanced as the years have gone along. When I was growing up, it was pretty simple, boom, color. Now it's flowers and four-leaf clovers, and you know what I mean? Like all kinds of things, smiley faces in the air, it's an incredible spectacle. Now, you, I make weird connections in my mind all the time, you probably can imagine that, and some of you who are here, who are here for, the, for the first time, you're already like, this guy's on pixie sticks, I might be. Um, <laughs> But as I was watching the fireworks last week and thinking of the spectacle that it is, because my kids are enamored, I'm enamored, uh, I was drawn in my mind to a passage. And if you don't mind, I'd like to share it with you. Because when we start thinking about spectacles, like this a piece of scripture has truly warmed my heart. So no need to turn there. I'm just going to read it for you. Uh, at the end of Revelation, listen to this. This beautiful, beautiful picture is portrayed. Uh, John is seeing all kinds of things seeing all kinds of spectacles. And in chapter 21, listen to this, please hear this. Uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. That'll be interesting. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, listen, as a bride adorned for her husband. Beautiful imagery. And now please hear this in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice uh, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Like, listen... I don't know about you, as for me and my house, that's deeply encouraging. That the dwelling place of God is with man. Because as man has it in and of himself, he has no dwelling with God. But because of uh, God's perfect son, Jesus, all of a sudden then God in the new heaven and new earth can dwell with man. And that's pretty incredible, right? But listen, any image that you had of an intimate God is about to be expanded. Listen to this, okay? He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God himself, right? Now look at this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If you're a parent, you know what this feels like, right? As the little chitlins are sitting on your lap and sometimes it gets a little gross and messy, right? But those tears... You're taking them, and, and it feels so loving as, as you become the tissue, right? You start wiping those tears away, and sometimes it's discipline, and sometimes it's just because they're, they're sad. But imagine the loving God wiping away every tear 
from our eyes. How intimate is that God? He's not done though. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. You see what I'm saying? Like, like no more. Death is no more. And when I was a kid, I would just think of eternity and instantly like my mind would go crazy. Does yours do the same thing? Like thinking of living forever because everything in us and our culture has an end, but there will be no end. There will be no death. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Listen, uh, for the former things have passed away. That is a spectacle, you see. A fireworks pale in comparison, in fact, to the spectacle of what our God will do in restoring all things. And I just want to say this before we do anything else tonight. I know for sure that there's hurt and pain and joy and mourning and all kinds of things in this room. I just want to tell you this. There's a day coming when he'll wipe away every tear from your eye. And that day's coming, and it's going to happen. And the day and the hour is unknown, um, but it will happen. And as for me and my house, I can't wait. Anyone else? Like, I really can't wait. And, and listen, uh, just when you start to get comfortable in this world, and that's what we'll talk about tonight, you need to remember, like, this is not our home, man. This is not our home. We're waiting on a better, a better home, uh, and when we'll dwell with God. And um, so if you're here for the first time and you're like, man, this, this is pretty crazy, uh, we're just getting started, okay? So uh, if you have your Bibles, and I know you do because there's some in your seats in your uh, pews, I guess is what we call them. Uh, open your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Uh, we're studying verse by verse through this letter that James writes to the church in Jerusalem. We've talked uh, many times as we've been uh, taking this journey about the nature of the church. James's whole push for the church is that they would become genuine in their faith. And tonight we wrestle with a very heavy, awesome, weighty text and many other adjectives of which I'll describe as we go. Uh, James chapter 4, what's the page number in our Bibles there? 898, thank you very much. 898 if you're uh, looking. Here we go, James chapter 4 verse 1, you guys there? Wonderful, thank you. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, interesting, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, the scripture says, because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, exclamation point, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Verse 5, or do you suppose it? is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And finally in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Right? You see what I'm saying? He gives more grace. And before we even look at a piece of this text tonight, can we just say amen to that? Like, he gives more grace. Grace upon grace. And I know as for me, like I'm in desperate need of that tonight. And he just keeps heaping it on. He gives more grace. Therefore, it said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the what? To the humble. A great journey. Listen, a heavy text. And let's begin wrapping through this verse by verse, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Now, he's talking to the church. I don't know if you've noticed this, but every once in a long while, the church, the people in the church, because that's what the church is, not brick and mortar, the people find themselves in a bit of quarrel little bit of fighting. This has always been confusing to me because we have something inside of us called the Holy Spirit that's supposed to be making us more like Christ. Then why is it that the world looks in at a church who's arguing almost more than they are? 
that they claim to be wrapped around in relationships, the love of God, and yet they uh, easily and quickly bite at one another. Why does this happen? Well, James answers the question for us at the end. Is it not this, that your passions, your desires, your lusts are at war within you? I uh, love war imagery. I'm a big fan of war uh, films and war uh, military uh, ideals and stuff. I really appreciate that. And you, uh, who are in Christ now, certainly know what that feels like. To have like the Toy Story 3 soldiers like at war inside of you when you come to moments of obey God or not. You know what that feels like? Obey God or not. Sin or not. Have you ever felt like, would you ever describe what's happening inside of you as a war? Well, James says it's because there's all these passions, lusts, desires that are self-centered, self-focused, that are battling inside of you. Uh, in other words, we wouldn't have quarrels if we all lived in our own cave. You see what I'm saying, right? Some of you might appreciate that, right? You're like, I actually don't like people. The thought of you know, sleeping in a cave and living in a cave with a nice comfy pillow would be much better than anything I'm used to now, mama's basement or what have you, right? Like, but we have quarrels and strife because our prideful, arrogant, self-centered selves are rubbing shoulders with others. And when that happens, uh, there's bound to be fireworks, right? Cue the slide. This is a, uh, the earth, if uh, you're new to geography. Uh, this is the planet to which you live upon. Uh, I chose North America, too, to, chew, uh, to weed out any confusion there for you. Um, have you ever heard the statement, uh, it's your world and I'm just living in it? Have you ever heard that before? I want to flip that a little bit. I think most of you live in the premise that it's your world and we're all just living in it. You live that you're um, the center of this massive galaxy that goes all around your desires and your wants and your needs and your relationships and anything that begins to rub against that, then you throw a hissy fit. I think many of us live in that reality. That's why when you have marriage, next slide, uh, there begins to become an issue here because you have two people who are living like it's their world and the other person is just living in it. Uh, for those of you that are married in this room, you know that this happens. Like if you're both in that self-centered mode, out of God's word, out of the spirit, uh, there's going to be fireworks, there's going to be quarrels, there's going to be fights. I, I just want to remind you that that's not what the gospel communicates in what Christ is doing in us. That we're to be peaceful people, that we're to be, as James even wrote earlier, making peace, that we're to be lovers of our enemies, right? So just picture then the church, right? Next slide, when you got a whole bunch of these folks that are gathered, right? And they're all living in this premise and in this reality and acting as if they are the axis to the earth's uh, circular motion, right? That sounded really scientific. It's really not. Uh, um, then there's going to be quarrels and fights. I have a problem with that. Anyone else? I have a problem with it because the world looks in and they're looking for peace and they don't see peace in the church and that's where they think they should see it. Isn't it interesting that they think they should see it in the church and then we're not showing it to them and then they're like, well, I, why would I want the gospel then? Why would I want anything to do with Jesus? I got enough chaos around my self-centered self, right? And so uh, James uh, gives us a really good picture. Like, isn't it from this that wars rage among you? Yes, I believe it is. So I thought it'd be good to point out some of those quarrels that happen among believers just to speak them, if we will. This could get awkward. First thing, relationship drama. Um. Uh, Every once in a long while, uh, maybe even in this room, maybe even in relationships in this room, uh, there ha there's like this thing called the, uh, isn't it strange that Christians, we break up horribly? Have you noticed this? 
Like when you begin to date, especially in the church, a guy or a girl, not only should our dating be at a much higher level than the world's. I mean, should be much more mature, much more focused on the person of Christ. But then let's say if things don't work out for some reason, right? Why is it that we go through this like crazy cycle of like breakup, cold shoulder, friends against, friends, against friends like we get gangs together, Facebook wars, like what, what is happening? What is happening? You know what I'm saying? Uh, girls are upset. I mean, just it's a crazy thing. It's not just that. Our marriages are, the church shows itself by how much it gossips and just it constantly being drawn, drawn into this reality TV sideshow, right? And what the world's saying, like, I, I got enough of this on cable. And then I come in the church, and I, like, it's almost more interesting because it seems like I'm, I'm getting more in here, right? Like, man, this is kind of a circus in here, right? That's not why they should be attracted to this. Those who don't know Christ should come in here and say, man, these people, like, there's just no drama. They don't even like it. They don't, they don't allow it, right? That's one of the things we quarrel. And next thing, this could get interesting, um, battling for power. I've shared with you guys before, on my very first uh, week in youth ministry, uh, when I was 18 years old, I went up against this uh, puppet master uh, woman. She was very old, uh, and, and, and she liked puppets. Um, I've shared before, I have a deep disdain against puppets. Um, <laughs> If any of you guys do puppet ministry or whatever, that's totally cool. Don't ever do it here. Um, in fact, I would say to you, if you, like, if you like puppets, like, just maybe repent and be saved, right? I'm just, I'm just kidding about that. Just don't ever do it here, though. And if you do it here in the room by yourself, right? Like, it just, puppets. Anyway, this woman, like, she told my, and some of you guys have heard this story before, but uh, she told us to, like, show up and memorize these lines. And so I had all my kids. I'm in my first week of youth, youth ministry. And I told the kids, I'm like, you don't need to memorize your lines. You're, you're a puppet. You know what I'm saying? You can look down at your lines. Like, that's why you're in puppetry, right? Actors memorize. Puppeteers read. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's the way you roll, right? Well, we show up. She doesn't appreciate this. Literally cusses me out in my first week of youth ministry in front of my students. I'm like, Welcome to church, kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't. But it was this, like, jockeying for power, like, her against me. And I, I sat there with my arms open, like, are you serious right now? You know? I about turned in my resignation. Thankfully, I didn't. But if you've spent any time in the church, right, like, there's all these issues around power. And uh, I was in many committee meetings, right, where the church was fighting about carpet color, which is interesting that I've had a couple of people last week say, hey, what, what color is the carpet going to be in the, at the new space? I'm like, we're not having this conversation. Like, <laughs> you'll, you'll show up, there will be carpet. That's good. Like, don't even worry about it, right? So if any of you guys want to talk uh, carpet color, we will fight. Number three, in love, in love. Number three, um, open-handed doctrine issues. The church, an insane amount of time arguing about dinosaurs, Okay? Open-handed doctrine issues. Let me, uh, let me d- d- describe the difference, okay? There's closed-handed doctrine issues. The inerrancy of the Scripture, okay? The power of the Gospel, the reality of Christ, the Trinity. These things are closed-hand. We're not arguing about these things, okay? You may come to us and you may say, I don't think the Scripture is, is all true. And we'll say, we think it is. Like, we're not arguing about that. You know what I'm saying? If you want to talk to us about that, we can talk more, but there's, there's no arguing. You want to talk dinosaurs? There's varying theories about that, Okay? The church spends a tremendous amount of time arguing about these things, even from Revelation like I read earlier. Like some of you guys or some people that I know have spent like three years studying Revelation, talking about if Revelation 12, the, like the six-headed dragon, is actually a helicopter in modern days. I'm like, listen, listen. Like we, 
We don't need to spend time arguing. I can sum up Revelation real quick. He's coming back, and it's going to be awesome, right? Like, like that's Revelation. But, but listen, the church finds itself in all of these side issues, which I'll, I'll describe why this is so dangerous here in a second. If you find yourself doing this, that's why over and over in Scripture, like, don't find yourself wasting your time in petty arguments, right? Lastly is this, and I hope uh, loose liberty and legalism issues. Let me just go ahead and say this. Um, alcohol, okay? Um, if you're completely unaware of this, you're living in the cave that I aforementioned, um, the church has spent a lot of time arguing about alcohol, okay? I have the Saturday Night Live skit in my mind, alcohol, you guys remember that? <laughs> Funny just to me maybe, but uh, on one side you have loose liberty. You have people saying, oh, the Bible doesn't speak against alcohol, so we're just going to go to it, right? And, and they toe the line. I know it says not get drunk, and yet they're still getting drunk. Like asking for forgiveness, which of course the grace of God is sufficient, but taking advantage of liberty, right? And then you have the other side that's saying, no, 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 and the scripture says don't drink. And so they're very legalistic. When they walk in a bar, which they would never do, these people, and they see people, and they, you guys know what I'm talking about, and they see people drinking, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're, whoa, 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 whoa. And it's created this massive, uh, just on this issue, argument in the church over alcohol. Let me tell you what Matthias believes. The Bible doesn't speak at all against, if you're of age, to drink. If you get drunk, that is a sin. If drinking in any way, even a drink, becomes an idol above God, that's a sin. But the Bible doesn't say don't drink. Are we together? Okay? Right? So that, that's the balance. But the church finds itself arguing about these things. Listen. And the reason why James attacks it now is because it is a massive distraction to the gospel. But the church has become so accustomed to it that they like this better because the gospel's harder. So they just argue about these things. They quarrel amongst themselves because it's easier to do that than to love the hurting, to take in the widow, to bless the poor. It's much easier. So the church just thinks that actually its purpose is to sit around and argue about the dinosaurs. I beg to differ. Our purpose is to love God and love people, period. So we better hop to it. You guys see what I'm saying? So as James continues to develop this, I want you to see the power in what he's saying. Listen, there's a life that you need to understand. So in verse 2, he adds, you desire and you do not have, so you, so you murder. Right? And some of you are like, well, well that doesn't... Like, I've, I've never murdered anyone, so this scripture doesn't apply to me. Hang on a second with me here. Uh, all my kids respond to discipline very differently. Avery, you look at her wrong, she runs up to her room, cries, and repents. Like, that's just her net. You don't have to say anything, you know? She's a little princess. You go up, she's written, you know, a 100-page line thing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, on her own accord. Like, that's just her. Uh, my middle son laughs in the face of discipline, okay? <laughs> you look at him, you tell him no. He smirks and thinks it's the funniest thing ever, right? And then I get a little more serious, and then he laughs harder. And then anyway, we'll talk about that later. But my youngest son, interesting, he's in this season um, where, he, uh, where he just throws massive fits. If he doesn't get his way, okay, if the desires that he wants don't accord with what ha- actually happens, I mean, flails his arms, kicks his feet, at times has hit Heidi and I, much to his demise, right? Um, it's amazing what you'll do when you don't get what you want. Amazing what you'll do. And just when you think that, oh, that's funny, that's a kid. Have you thrown some fit yourself? And maybe you weren't flailing your arms. Maybe you were, right? But it was just as much of a hissy fit. It was just as much you didn't get your way. In fact, it was worse because you demised people as you were at it. 
Um, we uh, used to watch this show. Many of you guys are unaware of this. Some of you will appreciate this. The creepiest show ever, Unsolved Mysteries. You guys remember this? Listen, I'm serious. If you want to freak me out ever, you show up at my house and you start playing the music that was on Unsolved Mysteries. It is the creepiest show ever. Have, just so I know, have some of you guys seen that show? Okay, many of you guys. Like here, first of all, creepy dude leading the show, okay? And here's what they would do. They would talk about some murderer or the, some like times like hauntings, which really got me. But they, but they would talk about this guy who had like killed 17 people. And then at the end of the show with the music playing, as he's standing there in his trench coat, he was like, and if you see this man right now out your back window, <laughs> waving at you, smiling, holding a gun, call this number. You're like, what? He's about, are you serious? Like this is... It, it, it ended that way every time. And if you see this ghost coming down your hallway. And yet we watched it every week. And every week I thought like we, the, my town was just being invaded by convicts. You know what I'm saying? Now, now listen, listen to this. Listen, listen. Now these shows have evolved. And so now we have 2020 and Dateline and my personal favorite 48 Hours Mystery. So because of my love of these things, I was watching this the other night. Okay, 16-year-old girl. Breaks up with her boyfriend. Any, any of you guys see this? Okay. You're like, no, I have a life. All right. Well, I was watching 48, <laughs> I was watching 48 Hours of Mystery, okay? She breaks up with her boyfriend, begins sending text messages to him that she's going to commit suicide, okay? Uh, when you don't get your way, it will cause you to do crazy things. Crazy things, right? Uh, she gets on a bridge, and she swerves her car into another car. In that car was a mom, a son, and a, a newborn baby, that, or a, a baby that was yet to be born. Killed all three, right? She lives. And as I was watching this and already pondering this text, it made me realize how much our passions and desires and the things that like, cause us to long for things will cause us to do things that we would never even think about. So at the moment you think, well, I'm not a murderer. Have you ever had the thought? Have you ever been so angry, so passionate, so vehement against someone that you really thought about taking their life? Has that ever occurred to you? Now, you may think, I'll never do that. But even in your mind, even in your heart, when you don't get your way, what James is saying is it will cause you to do crazy things. You better become aware of that. When your lusts don't fulfill themselves, he goes on in the middle of verse 2 to say you covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You spend all of your time looking at what everyone else has, their awesome relationship, their wealth, their possession over here. And because you can't have that or because you'll never be that good or gain this approval, then it makes you feel better than just to quarrel with them or to quarrel with others about them. He's saying there's a massive issue with pride. That's his point. If you're the center of your perceived own galaxy, then you find yourself in a dangerous position, so dangerous that he ends verse 2 saying this, you do not have because you do not ask. You're so consumed with your own self that you have forgotten the great privilege that God has given in allowing you to speak to him through his son Jesus. Like, you don't have because you don't ask. You're so consumed in your stuff, you've forgotten that you can speak to the Lord. And that is a huge blessing. He adds this in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to, what's the word? To spend it, are you still with me? To spend it on your what? On your passions. Uh, the word spend, uh, which many of you are very familiar with. Like, I'm a spender, right? I'm not saying that I am actually, but... Uh, and the rest of you guys, like, you're, just, you're a spender by nature, right? This word means squander. Exact same word that was used 
by Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son. Squander your prayers on your passions. That's what he's saying. You don't have because you don't ask. And when you ask, you ask incorrectly because you ask based on your passions. Well, that's a problem, especially because of 1 John chapter 5, which I'm uh, actually obsessed with. If you don't mind if I share this, you don't have a choice. And this is the confidence, verse 14, that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It better not just be me that loves this passage because this is a huge promise. Those of you that know I was on a huge prayer journey a few years ago, this was the rock bed text. If you ask anything according to the will of God in prayer, he hears you. That's an amazing promise, amen. Right. So the next question should be, well, what's his will? Uh, this whole book is packed with his promises, filled with them. Some things that are to come, like we read in Revelation, and other things that are experienced and being experienced now. When you pray his promises, you're praying in his will, and you will see answered prayer. And when you see answered prayer, you will pray more. And you'll have a growing appreciation for the intimacy that God allows you in prayer. But the problem is, you're not praying, consumed by yourself, and believing that prayer doesn't work while all the while not praying. Prayer doesn't work. I, I think if I just journal it, maybe that counts as prayers. God, why haven't you answered my journal from yesterday, right? He adds this. This is beautiful in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we will have the request that we have asked of him. He doesn't just hear us. He answers when we pray the promises. So I ask you this. Are you praying his promises or praying your passions, your lusts, your desires? Are you praying the promises or just praying your passions, Right? You get really antsy when you start praying your passions and God hasn't answered. God, I really want this like a little kid outside the refrigerator. Give me milk, give me milk. And when he hasn't answered you for 20 minutes, God, what's the problem? You've been praying for 20 minutes about yourself. Stop and start praying the scripture, right? I taught this uh, about a year ago, right? If you're struggling or not knowing uh, how to pray or what to pray, open the Bible. Great place to start. Let me show you how this works. In this text that we're just reading tonight, we start again in verse 4. Or chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? As I was praying through this text a few days ago, Lord, please, battle the quarrels in our community. God, please, make my heart a heart of peace. God, please, I, I, I repent of anything that I've done currently in relationships that are, is causing a jockeying of power. You use the word to guide your prayer. And then guess what's going to happen? When you pray the word, he will hear and he will answer. And you will pray more. And for those of you that think, yeah, I'm just really struggling in my prayer life, and I don't know, um, are you giving God a chance? It's like the best way to say it, I think. Are you giving him a chance to answer your prayers? If you pray your passions, you're not giving him a chance. Seriously, you want me to answer that? Like, if I answered those prayers, your life would be messed up right now. If God answered half the prayers you prayed, you understand, like, where life would be right now for you? God, please give me this. I don't think you want that. I know what will happen if I give you that. You start praying the promises, guess what? My word never comes back void, right? And so when you start praying the promises, I'll be glorified, and that's the whole purpose of all this anyway. Okay, right? So he says, listen, please sit back, pause, and understand that we need to ask based on his promises, not on your passions. And then he shifts gears a bit 
into a very weighty passage, verse 4. You adulterous people, that's not a compliment. Uh, (laughs) Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I I think first we need to understand enemy. Is that cool? The summary is, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. Are we at least understanding the weight and the gravity of that, that phrase, that text? Friend of the world, enemy of God. So let's understand enemy. In Romans 5, Paul says this. Romans 5, cue the Romans 5. There we go. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here's what Paul's saying. You're born an enemy of God because of sin, period. You're born an enemy. God cannot have anything to do with sin, and you're born with sin, making you an enemy of God. Thankfully, as this verse points out, God sent the Lord Jesus perfectly to die on your behalf that you may be reconciled, brought back, made at peace with God. But until then, you're an enemy. That's your reality. All of us, enemies, pre-Christ of God. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There is no way outside of Christ to go from enemy to friend of God. Are we together? That's the gospel. That's the premise of the truth that we speak about over and over every week. You're born an enemy. Uh, Paul adds some really tough text to this uh, magician named Bar-Jesus. Don't name your kid that, by the way. Just If you're taking notes, like don't name child Bar-Jesus, okay? Magician, a false prophet in Acts 13, and check out what Paul says about him. But Saul, who was uh, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, that's Bar-Jesus, not your child, and said, you son of the devil. Again, that's not a great compliment to pass to someone. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's what enemies of God do. They make crooked the straight paths of God, and they have no righteousness in them. They are far from God. We as believers are imputed with righteousness, given righteousness, seen as righteous in the eyes of God through Christ. The tough image is this. As much as I like war movies, uh, inevitably in every war film there's a battle. That's why they call it war, okay? You know the battle scenes vary from a field to a, like Black Hawk Down, like an urban setting. There's always one side or the other. Picture being on the other side of the creator, the definition of love and wisdom and mercy and grace and all forgiveness and standing, like the scripture says, with hostility. That's the word enmity, with hostility towards that. Imagine that. And yet, as, as far maybe as that seems from your heart, maybe it feels far nearer to others. That that's actually your current state. Standing at odds as an enemy of God because, what does the scripture say? You're a friend of the world. Well, we better define that. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? How do you pick your friends, you guys? How do you pick them? Is it uh, like interests? like the same bands, right? 
go to the same things, you play the same sports. Don't you remember when you were a kid? Showed up at a playground, hey, you want to play? Yep, go time, best friends forever. Wasn't that awesome? When you were a kid, that's how you roll. You showed up, if you're living and breathing, you want to play? Yes, I do, we're friends, go time. I mean, there was this, when I take my kids to the playground, they bring up new friends all the time. We'll probably never see that kid again, right? But they already have friendship bracelets, they're passing vows. I mean, it's a crazy, crazy thing. As you grow older, you become much more picky, if that's the word you want to use. Much more judging, right? We meet someone, they, if they make the list of the first 21 categories that have to be checked off to even get in our personal space, then there's a whole other subcategory system, right? How do you pick your friends? Well, this word friendship with the world, uh, it, it's interesting. It comes from the same uh, root word, uh, Philadelphia, or uh, phileo in this case, uh, kind of this brotherly love. The same word group that gives us the biblical word Kiss. So friendship with the world implies this intimacy with it. And not just this intimacy, but this love of it, this care of it. That the things that the world has to provide in all of its desires, lusts, and passions, you find yourself leaning on this side of friendship. I love that. I enjoy what this has to provide. It makes me feel great inside. I really appreciate this side of the spectrum. That's what friendship with the world is. He's not talking like he was in verse 1 to believers anymore. He's talking to non-believers. Why? A believer cannot be at hostility with God. Once you are called his kid, there is no more hostility. Are we together? Once you're in his clutch, there's no letting go. You can't break a covenant you didn't start, okay? Once you're in his clutch, in his arms, then there can't be hostility, which is a great promise for believers, right? And so he's not talking to believers anymore. Who is he talking to? How does he begin the verse? You adulterous people. If you're unfamiliar with the term adulterous, okay? Uh, again, not term of endearment that you find in categories. You guys know that category, term of endearment, right? It's a term that means cheating on, that you're committed to something and now you're not. And so who he's talking to are people that are confused. They out of one side of their mouth, are saying, God is my friend. I love God. I worship God. I serve God. God's awesome. I can spell God, right? And then on the other side, and then on the other side, not just out of their mouth, but mostly with their life, they're giving evidence that really they're friends over here. Maybe this image will help. You remember in high school, maybe junior high for you, maybe yesterday, I hope not, um, when you were friends with a guy and a girl who were dating, good friends with both of them. Remember this? Okay. It's happened to me once or thrice. And because most high school relationships end uh, not well, okay, mine actually did. Many of you guys know my story. Met my wife at 16, got married, told her on the third date we were going to get married. Uh, pretty awesome. So I know many of you, that won't happen for you, okay, or hasn't. For me, it worked out great. Um, so anyway, inevitably, right, you're friends with both, and then they start having issues, and you find yourself going back b between both of them. You guys know what I'm talking about? And if you haven't experienced this, you can at least picture it, okay? You're going back, oh, it's okay, you, need, you know, and you're like, you're playing both sides. Well, eventually they break up and you find yourself in a really big predicament. Why? Because you actually started to like the person, you know? And so if you're a guy and you were like counseling the girl, but you were friends with the dude, you're like, oh man, I feel so sorry for you. I'm actually a great counselor. What you doing tomorrow? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> We can talk through this breakup, we'll work through it together, we'll hold hands, you know? 
We'll kiss this through. We'll figure it out. You know what I'm saying? Don't worry about it. Or if you're a girl doing the same thing with a guy, like, this never ends well, agree? Like, you, you never find yourself between two positions like that and the ending with everyone giving each other a high five. It's not going to happen. Friendships will be ruined. And yet, that's what many of you are trying to do currently. You're trying to say, I'm a friend of God, and then participate like you're a friend of the world. This isn't going to end well. It's not started well. It's not going well. The gospel is black and white. You're in or you're out. You're either a follower of Christ or not. You're either an enemy or not. Right? And so he says, you adulterous people, because you say that you're a friend, but you're not a friend. You have gotten intimate with the world. So real quick, if you're struggling to know what this means for you, as a believer, I just want to encourage you, like, there's a war that's still raging inside of us. We're a new creation, the scripture says, but even Paul says, like, why do I do what I don't want to do and don't do what I do do? Like, there's still a war. And at times we struggle. We all struggle, okay? If you think that on this side of the cross that you don't sin, you are in error. If you're like, no, I don't sin, you just sinned, okay? So, um... We're all sinners still on the side of the cross, but God is making us, sanctifying us, changing our hearts to make us look more like himself. Friendship with the world is not struggling with sin periodically. That's not friendship with the world. It's periodically indulging in something that we know is an error. Quickly repenting, running from our sin, and turning to God. That's what repentance is. Friendship with the world is, I love this. I can't stop eating. I mean, I'll, out of, I'll, I'll say I love God, but actually, this is really what's feeding me. This is really what I enjoy. These are the relationships that I'm really participating in. So, uh, what would you say right now? Whose friend are you? The unfortunate thing is, if you find yourself tonight an enemy of God, it's not a great place to be. But if you hang with me for just another second, there's tremendous hope for you, okay? Verse 5, he adds what seems to be somewhat of a confusing scripture. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Because there's quotes over it. It seems that it's a quote from the Old Testament. It's not. It's a summation. Here's what he's saying. Remember that whole discussion about being an enemy of God? He's jealous for you. Wants you to worship him. God is a jealous God that is clear in the scripture as a piece of his character. Right? And so because of that, he says this in verse 6, for the same folks that are in here right now feeling condemned, shameful, man, Mark, all of a sudden I guess I'm realizing I'm really more a friend of the world. Verse 6 says this, but he gives more grace. I need to share something with you. So, what I realize is this. Sexual health right now is not good. I'm not just talking about our community. I'm talking about the church as a whole. I'm talking about our nation as a whole, obviously. A women who are struggling with porn and masturbation is on the rise. It, because it's so... Um, because it's so taboo, they're not talking about it. Thankfully, there's more and more women in this body that are talking about it and seeking healing. There's uh, infidelity going on. There are obviously men struggling with porn and masturbation and everything else that has to do with sexual healing. 
cross-dressing, homosexuality, you name it, right? And, and this has been huge on my heart. I've been like seeing the shame and the condemnation that comes in this. In the last three weeks, God has been pounding my heart. And he says, Mark, listen, I want to launch an arsenal in this church towards sexual healing and against sexual sin. And so we have been talking to some of the the nationwide experts. We've been mostly searching the scripture and praying through, and God is already showing what you'll be seeing in the coming weeks, what we're going to do as a church to fight sexual sin and to bring sexual healing. And when I read this scripture like there's more grace, I know for sure for many of you, even girls in here who are struggling, never said anything to anyone because it seems taboo. Listen, healing can be yours. And I know it doesn't seem possible right now. Those of you that are struggling with homosexual thoughts, you're like, how, how, can, how can I even get rid of this? Give God a chance, right? Like, watch the healing take place. There is more grace. And so I am so excited about this because we're pulling in experts and folks who understand, and we are going to provide, I guarantee, from this point on in our church, we're going to launch an arsenal against sexual sin. And I know for sure that the, the enemy ain't, ain't excited about this. This is going to be a long journey. But picture this, guys. Picture a church community where people are getting healing and testimonies are helping people. And people feel like they can actually admit it and not instantly be judged or hung on the cross. Imagine that. When the church becomes more, more, and more and more healed in that way, my friends, we will experience tremendous, tremendous growth in our hearts with Christ. Now, porn isn't the only issue. Right? Masturbation is not almost like sexual sin isn't the only one, but God's really burdened my heart that every answer is Jesus. Your porn issue is a Jesus issue. You need more of Jesus, okay? Your homosexuality thoughts, they need more of Christ. Like, that's the answer. But what God said is the product of pride in choosing not Jesus but these other things needs to be cut down, healed, restored, not band-aid with duct tape. And so that's our plan and that's our approach. I just want to encourage you guys who are struggling in any kind of sin, there's more grace. And if you walked in here and you're feeling like you're an enemy of God, I'm just telling you, you can leave here a friend. And that is incredible. How can God do something so fast that seemed like it took him so long to finally bring redemption in Jesus? That's the way the gospel works. And that's the blessing for us to be able to look back 2,000 years. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit too excited. Let's But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, he's talking about the scripture, God opposes the proud. He wants to make sure that there's a delineation. There's more grace, but don't mistake. He opposes the proud. Paul said it this way, like, don't go on sinning and take advantage of grace. Like, he still opposes the proud. So if, if you're, if, like, your globe thing, if that's the way you're rolling, he will oppose you. You are an enemy of him. But he gives what? Grace to the humble. And the humble are the people who raise up their hands and say, I have nothing without you. I need you, period. That's my life. He opposes anything else. But he gives grace to those who say, you are my God. I need you. I will follow you. So um, wherever you're at in that journey tonight, I, I guess what I'm saying is, do you recognize your need of grace? Or are you sitting as this galaxy revolves around your perceived access and you think you're all good? Let me assure you, you're not. And the day is coming when these things that seem to be fulfilling you will not anymore, and I pray it's not too late. I have a few more things to share with you, but I want you to stand with me if you could.
Um, Matthew 26. Jesus and his disciples uh, had the last supper together. And uh, then this happens. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. If you don't know the story of Judas, he is a uh, disciple. He's a guy who's seen the healings and been around the teachings and has claimed to be a follower, a friend of God, in this case, in the person of Christ. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. Do you understand the audacity of this moment? The adulterous heart of this moment. Judas has said, I am a follower of you, Jesus. I'm one of your disciples. And he's going to betray Jesus with a kiss. In this case, it will be the kiss of death. Can you imagine any larger of a betrayal, any larger of a picture of a, the, the, the depravity of man's heart? And look at how the story ends. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. Uh, that's just like many of you, right? You're my teacher. I follow you. And then he kissed him. But it wasn't a kiss of affection. It was the kiss of friendship with the world. It was the kiss of betrayal. It was the kiss that aligned his heart as being an enemy of God. And maybe you've never noticed this before, but look at what Jesus says. Friend, do what you came to do. And I guarantee you in that moment, the word friend had different connotations. See? It was a word of conviction. It was a word of you said you were and now you're not. So those of you that have come here tonight kissing death all over the place, in fact, that's what you've made a life of doing. Friendship with the world, kiss of death over here. All I want to tell you tonight is you can kiss death no more. And the breath of life and the fountain of life and the realness of life that comes in the person of Christ can be yours right now because he gives more grace. And so tonight we're going to celebrate with the Lord's Supper. An opportunity to come around the table as Christians and followers of Christ have been doing for years, and this is for Christians to come and pull a piece off of the bread and dip it in the cup to remember that because Jesus kissed death and then rose again, we don't have to. Because he took on that burden and then conquered death, guess what? My sins now are crucified, and though I will die in the flesh, I will one day live again. And like we read at the beginning of tonight, my friends, we will all live forever in Christ. And so, kiss of death, no more. It provides nothing except standing on the opposite side of the Creator who's all-loving, all-merciful, all-gracious. And that's not a place I want to be, and I pray not you. So I want to pray for us right now that God would do a deep move of repentance. 
And for those that need Jesus for the first time, I, I would pray that you would call on him. You would say, I want to trust in you and I'm tired of being the axis because I know I can't be. So let me pray right now for God's spirit to do a work in our hearts. Father, please, like only you can and like only you're able, I pray right now in this place that you would remind us of our standing in your eyes through your son. Remind us that we're sons and daughters. Remind us that we're ambassadors. Remind us that we're slaves no longer to sin. But to the Son of Man, God, remind us of these things. And God, I pray for those who are kissing death all the time, every day. I pray, Father, that the last kiss was before they walked in here. And I pray that you would change their hearts right now. Breathe life into them, God. Give them salvation, redemption. Reconcile them back to yourself. Bring peace in their hearts. And God, lastly, for those who are experiencing shame and regret and remorse to points that they don't even understand, I pray that healing would come in these moments in your son. So church, as you're ready tonight, respond by taking the Lord's Supper.